Jordan is on best. Harper's on middle. Play together, they believe. Um, if there's Levert, it's cold. Levert, back in. Speed. Oh, he's a one-man wrecking crew. Holiday, shot clock down to six. Finds one. Welcome to another edition of the Indy Cornrows podcast. This is your host, Mark Schindler. I am joined today by Caitlin Cooper, my, my colleague and co-host from over at Indy Cornrows as well. We have a lot to dive into today. Um, it has been an eventful weekend or just week in general to season, I guess. So much has gone on in Indiana. First thing I got to ask you, Caitlin, how are you doing? Did you cook any Thai food today? <laughs> I'm doing pretty well at this point. It's funny that you ask that because I have only once made something that's Thai related and it was a Thai peanut butter sauce pizza. And, and to be honest, when I say I helped make it, I think I took it out of the oven, but I do remember that it was good. So maybe I should dabble into that some more. Yeah. I'll take your word for it. I, uh, the last time I ate Thai food, I actually ended up drinking like four bottles of water. Cause I got like, a, like I got one of the, I went to a, a Thai restaurant. It was one of the ones that had like the peppers on it for indicating like how hot it is. And I of course oh, no. got something that had like six peppers on it. I was like, oh, I'll be fine. It was not fine. Uh, it tasted amazing, but uh, for whatever reason, spicy peanuts just do not uh, do not let you feel uh, anything other than the burn for a really long time. So that was not a fun night, but Thai food was fantastic. Um, this is all spurned, of course, by my inability to spell on my phone. So thank you for that. Uh, but we're here to talk about the Indiana Pacers, who uh, after what should have been a fairly easy game against the Miami heat who despite the heat being a, a really well-run uh, organization and team were missing Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo uh, due to the health reasons. The Pacers were missing no one except for TJ Warren and Justin Holiday, who Justin is in health and safety protocols still currently, which uh, Woj and Shams have still not tweeted about. Um, but I, oh, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that. Um, this game was I mean, would you go along with me and saying worst game of the season in terms of how everything played out? Well, yeah, because I mean, just yeah, to recap, like, like yeah, I mean, it, it's close with this one and, and the game Denver, in Denver probably, yeah. but at least in that case, you were on the road and you were playing in altitude and Brogdon had strep throat and Chris Duarte's shoulder didn't look right. Like there's a lot fewer excuses. I will add in that TJ McConnell was out, but yeah. Uh, yeah. So did you watch any of the pregame before this game started? Uh, I did not watch the pregame, actually. Okay. So that's when I knew that things were off to a rough start. Because... Oh, wait. Yes. Yes. Never mind. So do you uh, know what I'm going to say? Yes. Uh, yes. Go ahead. So in the pregame show, there there's the set that's the loft there. And I, I think that it's pre-recorded. Like, I think they do it well before the game. But there's a sparse fans back behind the scoreboard. And... And there's people roaming about. And the only three people you can see and view are three kids wearing Tyler Hero and Jimmy Butler jerseys. And I was like, you know, this is kind of a sad commentary on the current state of things. And then obviously, you know, Bally Sports has tons of technical issues during the first half. And then by the end of the game, like home fans are booing the team and frustrations have boiled over. So, yeah, I think this one trumps the Denver loss just a little bit. 
Yeah. Yeah. I'm right there with you. Um, it was a very tough watch. And actually what I thought you were about to go on, I missed that part. What I thought you were going to go on was how Demonis Sabonis came. Like he was announced that he was going to be in the starting lineup. He has not, not started a game that he's been healthy for since his first year. No, a second year in Indiana. What am I talking about? Um, and the teams line up and Tory Craig is out there instead of Demonis Sabonis. And we get a report um, I believe it was Jeremiah Johnson who put it out that there was like he was dealing with uh, a personal matter and was TBD. Um, and then he came running out onto the court like two or three minutes into the game. Uh, that was weird. <laughs> like, I, I hope everything's OK with Elmas. I know that Scott Agnes put out a story on it. I did not have time to read it today, um, but I'm hopefully everything's OK with him. But so that was uh, it. it it added an even even more odd part to it. And then, of course, Torrey Craig played the opening four minutes and then didn't play the rest of the game. Um, just a lot of weirdness there. Yeah, I think um, – I don't know if Scott had it behind a paywall or not, but I think the essence of what went on was they had termed it a family issue and his whole family's in town from Lithuania. Mm-hmm. And one of them, I believe – is what was relayed had either had a close contact themselves or tested positive for COVID. So Sabonis had to get a rapid test before he could come out there and play. He had to clear it. So that was like the family issue he was dealing with. But yes, I forgot that whole aspect that they didn't even have him at the beginning of the game. I think they were down 14 to seven when he came in. So I don't remember the minute mark, but you know what, let's just get into the very start of the game because that was hit on a lot in the post game media availability of like, the two words that keep getting brought up all the time, I feel, in every media availability is defense and disposition. So, um, obviously, the Heat started off hitting quite a few threes. Um, one of them, I would agree with Karis, is, you know, Kyle Lowry's about ready to fall out of bounds, and he puts one in. Like, in the words of the highly esteemed Quinn Buckner, like, that's good defense. If it goes in, it goes in. So, Um, The other ones I think are a little bit questionable, but that's where I kind of quibble with some of the post-game availability because I'm not sure I would equate that completely to disposition as much as, you know, Sabonis isn't out there and they decided in contrast to the first game between the two teams that which Kyle Lowry didn't play in, but that they're going to be in a drop. They were in a drop when Kyle Lowry was stepping into pull-up shots with like just moseying into the paint. I don't really know why they came out in that. In the first game, they were in hedge and they were jumping, especially if if Tyler Hero was on ball. They were even doing it with Jimmy Butler just to keep him out of the paint. So like I don't know that that necessarily is reflective of the team's energy changing as much as later in the game they mixed in zone and then they, they themselves went back to the hedging that worked in the first game. So what were your thoughts about the early, like not great start? Yeah, no, I'm, I mean, I'm right there with you. That was um, automatically problematic seeing the way that they came out defensively um, or just how they were playing defense. Like you mentioned, it's not an energy thing. What I found more troubling was the offense. Like um, again, not to discredit PJ Tucker and Kyle Lowry, they're both very good defenders, Kyle Lesso at this stage in his career, but okay, they're starting Dwayne Dedman. And I mean, like we mentioned two, they're two best defenders on the team Two all defensive players last year are out and they just really did not find any way to, to seemingly attack the defense or, or manufacture easier buckets. Like there were times too early where it felt like they were trying to um, feed things inside 
like to uh like it, i mean it was odd like it almost felt like they were trying to force feed miles early um even though it but it, it felt it, it, exactly it felt very forced it didn't feel great like the the, the matchup or the looks weren't exactly one that i would have gone for i i don't know like i i don't i don't have a lot of great insight on that um but it was disparaging like okay this team should not be coming out i mean on on either end compared to what miami was putting out there on the court like when you have tyler hero out there and dwayne deadman just multiple players who you can not even necessarily attack one one but players who are not exactly defensive anchors it was uh i it was just head scratching yeah, I'm a little bit different because, I mean, they started the first possession and Miami's in a zone and Miles popped up from the baseline and hit that very nice-looking free-throw mm-hmm. line jumper. And then I think he hit another one of those. Like, it, it didn't look great when I think he had Kyle Lowry on him and kind of posted him close and, like, yeah. didn't want to go toward the basket. But that's kind of an ongoing narrative there. But overall, I looked up on Synergy this morning. The Pacers didn't score points on 14 of 22 zone possessions, which I think the 22 is probably – a little bit of an undersell on how many possessions Miami actually played zone, but I went and searched through for the eight where they actually did score points. And all of them was giving the ball to either miles or Sabonis or Karis mm-hmm. in the middle of the zone and making something happen like too much of the rest of the time. Like there's so many possessions offensively, not only just during this four game losing streak, but anytime when they go through these slumps where they can't score the ball, where it's like the ball is going to go everywhere except the most obvious place that it needs to go. Yeah. Like one, when Sabonis wasn't even on the floor, Miles is open in the middle of the court. And like, I'm not saying he's not going to make like plays three on two, like Sabonis did to O'Shea cutting, but like what you're saying, like there were times where Udonis Haslam was in the middle of the floor. Like, Miles can make a free throw line jumper and that's better than what they were getting out on around the perimeter for most of the game, especially when you don't have even Justin out there to be able to available as a shooter. So, um, yeah, yeah. Like that was a piece of it. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to cut off, but just like, like exactly what you're saying. It felt like, um, there were very clear areas to attack defensively and they just kept going back to and I think what's going to be a large part of our talking point is just kept going back to contested jumpers to a degree like yeah yeah because the one thing that I was going to say is it's like and I mentioned this in my column it's not even so much that they're shooting threes it's the type of three so they mm-hmm. don't give it to miles on that possession and I believe Karras ends up with it over on the left wing and miles sets a nice intuitive flare screen for Duarte on the other side of the zone and Duarte is like basically a tube man at a car sale lot and Karras doesn't even look over there and just passes it to O'Shea who kind of ends up then bumbling the ball and then frustration boils over on the court. And it's like, I don't know. I don't know what's leading to it. It, 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 to me, it's like they don't read the floor what's out there or they don't know what the other people are doing. I don't know. I mean, sometimes against zone, it just has to be reads. Like there's not that many, you know, pet zone plays and the one that they normally run where they screen the inside, which is a very nice play. And the big then goes over to whichever corner the other guy's in. And that generally opens up a shot. The heat were covering pretty well. I mean, there was a few times where I thought Karras needed to wait for the guards to actually make contact when they were on the inside, but they were skirting those pretty well. So like, you're not going to have tons of set plays, especially at the NBA level. You're just kind of expecting guys to be able to tear holes in it off the drive or just to play through the middle. And it's like, you know, I think they went to that right away in the fourth quarter through Sabonis and he scored. And then 
never saw it again. And I felt yeah. like in the third quarter, they, they got bogged down by that zone and, and that contributed to some of what was going on defensively. And yet, you know, at the end of the, at the post game media availability, it was the same thing that happened after the Detroit game. And we talked about this before we hopped on, but like, uh, I don't remember who it was. Ashford Carlisle question about Kara having 27 points or whatever. And he's essentially like, you know, I don't want to talk about offense. I just want to talk about the last five minutes of the game. And I, this isn't a direct quote, like, but paraphrasing, like when we were trying hard on defense, like, and I'm not going to say that effort issues aren't there. They are, but the offense is a piece of this problem. It undeniably is like, I mean, in the clutch article I wrote this morning, if you look, they are bottom 10 in clutch minutes, which this wasn't a clutch game, but bottom 10 and, and clutch offense and defense per 100 possessions. There's only two other teams that are doing that new Orleans. And I can't remember what the other one is off the top of my head. I don't think you really want to be in company with new Orleans right now. So, um, you know, he said that after the Detroit game, they'd scored 10 points over the final 10 minutes. They didn't crack 90. They didn't crack 90 in Detroit. And it was pretty obvious in both of those games that some of the pace control was really sucking the life out of the offense. So then they go down to Charlotte. And I will back up a little bit and say when Karras was asked that same question in Detroit, he effectively said, like, we didn't crack 90 in two games. So then they go down to Charlotte and the starters get benched. And it's like that was kind of treated as, you know, this is going to be a wake up call for these guys and there's going to be better effort. But really what what changed when they came back home from New Orleans was that the play calling was relaxed and they were allowed to play more free and random, at least for a few games there. So. I don't know what to think about. I don't know where you're at, but I don't know what to think about when it when everything just keeps, keeps getting blamed on the defense. And I understand that through the first three quarters, they gave up 30 points. That's not great. Like, I'm not claiming that the, the defense was flawless in that game, especially by comparison to the first game they played against Miami. But I think that it needs to be acknowledged that they're having issues on offense. Yeah, and especially, too, over the last two weeks. Um, and I think it has been the same way the whole year, but – when they have an offensive possession that dies, and especially if it dies early, like that definitely feeds into the defense, it feels like, especially in, in transition. Like the, I, I think a lot of times if you just look at the at the numbers for the transition defense, you'd be like, okay, I get it. They have, they start two guys who are 6'11". Of course, they're going get, to get killed in transition. But like you put a clip in your article of, of Karras, like, and, and it's not it's not to say that he's lazy or anything like that, but just generally there was not urgency getting back, and that is something we see regularly with multiple players on the team. It's not just a one person thing, and it does feel like some of that is because of the way that the offense bogs down. I, would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, on that particular possession, like the number one shot that's going to turn into a fast break going the other way is a missed layup. Like, mm -hmm. you know, if you're going one on whatever, and then if, especially if you fall out of bounds, your team's going to be at a disadvantage. And Karras in that particular clip, and when I wrote about the transition defense being somewhat of an issue last year, um, not to point fingers, but he he struggles somewhat when he when you get back in that mini zone to know if he needs to rotate out or not. Like I remember he and miles having a little bit of an argument about that on court. And in this particular one, like, I don't know what's going on. I don't, obviously they showed him on the bench several games with, with the back device on. I, I, I think he has to still be having some stiffness and problems with that. Yeah. Cause there's certain moments where it looks like he's just not going to be able to get another step and get that extra burst, whether it's to get into the paint, whether it's to turn into end, but if it isn't that, then it's an urgency problem. And then my question becomes, you know, with some of the energy issues that, that are apparent at times, what's causing it. And like, a lot of people want to be like, you know, it shouldn't matter. You're professionals. And I understand that they're being paid to do a job, but what going on behind the scenes is leading to it. Cause 
I mean, it doesn't seem like there's a clear answer. And and my only question would be, it's one thing, like some players might just, that just might be somewhat of their on-court personality. But for most of these guys, it wasn't two years ago. Like I looked back at an article, I included that clip of Victor still running down the court when they were up 35. I wrote a whole article of plays like that where they were up big in games and guys were still competing. Like they needed, you know, it was their last breath. That's how much they were competing. And a lot of those players are the same. It's not complete turnover. So what, what has caused that? Like, I don't know if it's because they got off to a poor start and they're, they kind of freeze up at the end of games and that's contributing to it. I don't know if they no longer have belief in their ability to pull things together. I don't know if, like to put it nicely, some of the excess micromanaging that was going on in terms of like um, continuing to yell out some directions about where people need to be on the court until there's under 10 seconds left on the clock contributes to where that's at. If it's, you know, the looseness of the rotation and how some guys like what you said with Tori Craig, like I understand making situational adjustments, but at this point, like some guy might play one night and then he doesn't play for three more. And I think that's a little bit easier to do when you're like Greg Popovich in San Antonio and you have an established reputation at that franchise, as well as like for years, three veterans who believe in what you're doing, who obviously are well-esteemed versus coming here. And it's like some of these players have to be wondering and, and you should stay ready to play. Like I'm not making that argument, but I don't think it can be easy when they're already having injuries to be establishing chemistry or to know exactly what their role is going to be when that's been the rotation. Well, yeah, let's just build on that for a second. So just looking at O'Shea Reset, DMP first game, seven minutes second game, and then he plays 80 combined minutes in the next three games to, to, to 13 minutes over the next three. DMPs for seven out of his next eight games. Gets some small rotation run, DMPs again, six minutes, DMP, and then back-to-back 17 minutes plus. Like, I – I, I, how are how are you supposed to expect a player to find a rhythm when they don't necessarily know what they're doing night in night out? Like I understand to a degree coming out and being like, well, you know, we just need guys to be ready and stay hot. And I'm like, okay, well, for most of these guys, it's just not a thing. Like it, it's it's so hard to actually find what you're doing on court if it's going to be different. You know, every two or three nights, you're being asked to do something different. And I I understand a lot of people be like, you know, they're professionals, they're paid to do it. And I'm like, yes. They are professionals. They are paid to do this, but also they're accustomed to doing things in a routine way. And nothing about how the rotation has been set out has felt very routine, at least not in a way that's going to benefit most of the guys who are not starters on the team. And even for some of the starters, it's not been beneficial. Right. And um, they've said that they want to like feel it out. And, and you know, I understand, especially with sizes, like, you know, you might want O'Shea or Tori in a situation or you might, mm-hmm. you know, want to play smaller. Like I'm, I'm not immune to understanding that yeah but it's like i think it was at the end of that hawks game when karis took the not great shot that jeremy recycled and and made that three toward the end and it's like i was thinking to myself you know other than when jeremy scored all those points when the starters got benched in charlotte like he's been really infrequent and then he was in a closing lineup like you know he he had essentially been replaced by uh keelan playing more minutes, which I got at the time. And, you know, some of it too is because Justin's out, but I I don't know. It feels very sporadic in terms of people who, you know, it's not necessarily like, oh, we want this person versus this guy. Like they do very similar things. And just like, I mean, Goga is like, just, you know, kind of non-existent again too, after he had been getting minutes. So 
I don't know. I, I yeah. can see where there might be some frustration from some of that. But my main point being is like, I'm just wondering what is causing the energy and effort issues that yeah. are apparent. There has to be a cause. No, like, exactly. some, like I said, some of these guys were not like this. They weren't like this. Even, you know, we didn't get to this point of what we saw against the Miami heat last year until around like that Kings game. Yeah. I didn't feel. No, so, I agree. Like this was not the even, early last year. This was not a thing. Um, and I, I think that's where I agree to. And I, I'm not trying to sound like high horse preachy or whatever, but I, I just, and, and I don't, I don't have an answer for why this is what it is. Um, but I do find it frustrating how much people, and not to just completely slander Rick Carlisle, but I do struggle with, okay, you've come out multiple post games now and been like, oh, our effort just isn't there. Our effort just isn't there. And I'm tired of people saying, oh, well, I'm glad that somebody's saying it and putting the players in their place. I'm like, okay, but why don't we turn around and say, why is that happening? If, if you exactly. are such a good coach, this shouldn't be happening. And like, if it is, then why are we just accepting it? Exactly. Like, like I just, I don't and they would wanna... say, well, they benched the starters or they benched this person or whatever. And it's like, okay, but it's not That's more of really an indictment changing. on the coach than the starters. In my opinion, yeah. if you can, if your starters are not coming out and playing for you during a yeah. game that matters, that means a lot more about you than it does about the players, in my opinion. And I'm sure people will disagree with that. That's fine. Um, oh, I, just... I mean something. Exactly. Like, I mean, there's like... certainly something that needs to be taken away from it. Yeah. Oh, no, I mean, like, it's finally you disagree with me. So I'll screw right back. Like, I just, that's not good. That is clearly not good. And I think where I just really struggle with it, too, when I've been thinking about the last couple of days, um, and again, this is not to rehash everything. Like, obviously, we talked about it at the time. It made sense that Nate McMillan got let go. Like, I do think it was time for a change. But also, he just never got afforded some of the slack that I think has already been given to, to, to Rick Carlisle this early in his tenure. Like, if, if, like we just never saw this kind of stuff happen under Nate, and I do. Uh, I, I just struggle with with how some of it has played out. If we're being completely honest, but um, well, yeah, because as much as like you know the ceiling was was questionable under Nate McMillan, most you knew games what you were getting they, every night. I knew what I was getting, and I never questioned that they were gonna probably play harder than their opponent, or at least match their opponent's intensity most nights. I mean, I wrote an entire piece. I believe during the 17, 18 season, cause they kept clawing out of 15 point deficits. I mean, and you can point out like, why were they in it? But that in part was because they were obliterating expectations. Like they were overachieving and then they just had a belief that they were going to come back and win and they kept playing hard. So, you know, energy goes both ways. Like, I don't know where the players heads are at, but I, I do think that it's worth asking what's causing it. Um, and then I, I just don't think that you can completely absolve what's going on either, because, I mean, we had talked about, I mean, I don't remember when this was, probably in August when you and I talked about how this felt very purgatorial before the season even started, and that I hadn't really felt that way until there was a couple interviews at Summer League, and then the comment that was made about, like, oh, you know, the double bigs are going to challenge his Rick Carlisle's creativity, I guess. And Rick Carlisle kind of referring to the roster is like, oh, that's an interesting roster. Like you're watching what's going on. And again, I know they don't want to talk about the offense. And I know that in some regards, like efficiency wise, it, it's better, but they go through these long stretches. And I, I still, it's like with every coaching change, they've corrected the wrong major problem. 
like they've gone after other things. Cause when you let go of Nate McMillan, you're a top six defense. And all I heard Nate Bjorkren talk about at the start of last year is we're going to play this disruptive, aggressive defense. And we were hearing very little about the offense, even though he did correct some of it, corrected some of the shot profile. I do think there was good things they did on that end of the floor. And now it's like, they're talking about the defense a lot again, but in so doing, I don't really understand why the decision was made and, and they're, bid for togetherness and defense that the answer to get to togetherness was we're going to de-emphasize our best player to the extent where he can go for long stretches, whether, you know, it's in these fourth quarters or whatever, and he might get one shot, just like miles might get one shot, or, you know, you can go an entire 24 0 run against the Hornets and you're not even going to attempt a shot in the paint. Um, I don't, I don't really understand that. I don't think that, you know, I understand the inefficiencies of post-ups. I never guessed that he would be averaging fewer post-ups than Porzingis this year or last. Um, that's hard to understand still continues to be. And, and the overall thing about, you know, we can talk about Brogdon in a little bit, but I think to put my rambling into perspective, I think that Rick Carlisle values Sabonis because after what they did against Minnesota, he talked about, you know, he's been tremendous, you know, he's been great for us all year. We we've needed him. I just think he only values him in what way he wants to value him. And that's your job as a coach. But at a certain point in time, like, I mean, you and I don't really think he was ever really a fully heliocentric option, but this would be different if, you know, the Pacers were contenders and they had two, you know, really outstanding wing options or guys who could break the people down off the dribble easily and had handle burst combinations to beat some of these traps and the pressure on the perimeter. They don't really have that. And it kind of just feels like you're de-emphasizing him just to do it. Like you want to play five out. And I think that they very much value him as a screener and value his ability to play out of pocket and other stuff. But it's always like, if you're going to involve somebody or you're not going to involve them, what's the reason? And I, I don't, I've tried to understand it like clear back in preseason. I wrote the article about why they might put him in the corner, but it's continued on to now. And I, I just, you know, we've talked about it many times, but I think that it's worth asking that question as well. Like, why was that done for what reason? I, I don't know. And like, uh, you bring up such a great point too, because I know so often, like I just see fans be like, you know, this team needs a point guard. And I don't entirely disagree. Like I do think this, it's less about a point guard. It's more somebody who can actually create separation without a screen, but that's where it comes back to, to what you're talking about with Domas. Like Malcolm is not that guy. Like I, that I think the world of Malcolm as a player, he's not someone who can consistently beat a player off the dribble without a screen and that's not an indictment of him that's just who he is as a player but it feels like at times rick treats him like he is a player who can consistently do that um and less so that more just like you don't use domas in a way that makes sense to open things up for a roster that's full of guys who don't quite have the ability to consistently separate from their man and that's just why it's so frustrating in general um because oftentimes when they're playing five out, it doesn't get guarded like it's five out. So what's the point? Um, yeah. I, I, and I don't, and, it, I don't and it, like if people read the article, part of my question is, you know, a lot of times when these scoring droughts occur, and this applies to Miles as well in some respects, you're playing against a smaller Pistons front line. You're playing against a small ball Hornets team. You're playing against the Lakers with only LeBron. 
and you're not really doing anything to leverage the size. So aside from like being able to hopefully rebound and screen, it's hard to, again, understand the point. And I'm not saying, oh, just like, you know, I'm not trying to be Shaq on TNT, like get on the block and do that every possession. Like That's not what I'm saying, but there are other ways to attack mismatches like using him on the roll when, you know, D'Angelo Russell's the only weak side tagger that it's just hard for me to fathom. Cause like, why do you need to run like all this movement out on the perimeter when you could get him at the middle of the floor and then either D'Angelo Russell's not going to be able to do anything against him at the rim. Or if D'Angelo Russell does come over there, then Justin's getting a easy catch and shoot three instead of one off of motion. And like, I understand their offense in the sets, lots of it's good in the right circumstances, but it just feels like they're just browsing through windows on the, on the internet at times without making productivity. Like, you're just scaling through the options like, well, we don't really intend on using this pick. It's just here. And then we're just going to pass it to the other guard and he's going to dink around for a little bit. And we're not going to use that pick either until finally one of them gets into the lane and takes a shot. And, you know, it's, it's not just Brogdon either, because I think in part what's going on there is I think he's a good playmaker. I think he's been one of their best players this year pretty easily. Definitely. I like what he does. He does a lot of things really well. But when he gets the ball against those double teams, he's struggling to find angles to get to get those passes in in a way that it, I don't feel that it should be quite as hard as it's turning out to be. But then there's the whole other aspect of Karras. And he scored well against the Heat. But that's kind of the thing. Like, he, he might have a night where he hits all those shots, and then two nights later he might be like 5 of 18. And his passing drop-off is so perplexing to me. I don't know where yeah. I don't know where you're at with it because at the back end of last year his passing looked good and I looked up on cleaning the glass and I get that like shooting is down across the league the Pacers aren't shooting the ball well so you're not going to be registering as many assists every night if you have a poor shooting night when you're a guard and you're passing it out to a shooter I get that but he was in like the 85th percentile of assist to usage rate once he started playing for the Pacers last year and now he's down in like the low 50s. And there's just moments where, again, like I want to be respectful of the fact that I'm guessing that his back doesn't feel 100%, but he'll be getting into the basket and you might have miles wide open in the corner and he doesn't even try to make that pass or, you know, Sabonis can be under the basket and he doesn't try to make that pass. I don't know how else to refer to it, but blinders. I don't always feel that that's what Brogdon's doing. I feel like with Brogdon, it's somewhat of a limitation in his ability to bend those traps Whereas with Karras, it's like, okay, if you're like lately, if, if he's out there and he isn't making shots, I don't know what else that's doing for the rest of the team for him to have the ball as much as he did. I mean, I felt like that showed up against Milwaukee. Like he scored a bunch of points, but the rest of the offense didn't look good in that game. Yeah, no, exactly. Like you're that this, I was, I was, I was trending towards asking the exact same thing. Um, he just looked like a completely different player this year. Uh, in terms of how he's handling the ball, uh, not not handling, but in terms of playmaking, just overall, like you mentioned, they ran the entire offense through him the Milwaukee game too. When when he was on the court, he had one assist, and that's not everything. Like obviously, playmaking is not strictly by the box score, but like you're talking, it just felt like a hot shooting night. Like he was nine of thirteen from the field. He had four of his five threes, which we know is not a regular thing. Um, it it just didn't feel like something sustainable. It felt like watching. Uh, Gosh, what was it like when Domas had 30 against Milwaukee last year? Uh, and not not to the same degree because Domas was still, you know, passing, but you you get my point. Like um it just it I don't know what the thing is with that. But then also, like you're talking about, 
in terms of blinders. Um, like there was a point, and, and you and I both disagreed with it. So it, you know, obviously take it with a grain of salt, but there was that Yahoo Sports article from Vincent Goodwill last year that when it talked about the potential of, of Malcolm or Domas being traded, like them being involved in trade rumors potentially, and the Pacers viewing Karis LeVert as a potential point guard of the future, you and I both disagreed with that. And we were like, hey, I don't know, like that's probably a little too much. But I'm, I mean, you and I coming into the year both agreed that, that Karis was probably the best ball handler who facilitator as a ball handler or could make the, the most complex passes off the dribble on the team. And that has not been the case this year. Like we just are not consistently seeing him doing that. Part of that is like, he's not going to the rim the same way that I think we saw last year for spurts. Um, But also, like you mentioned, like he just isn't seeing things or he's ignoring them. And I don't, I don't know what to make of that because I'll be honest. I think one of my weaker areas of analysis in basketball is understanding playmaking and, you know, how guys are seeing the court or not seeing the court, but I mean, it's been abundantly clear that it's very, very different from last year. Yeah, it's been a little bit startling. I mean, and not even just from last year, but when he was in the bubble yeah, and, and Jacques Vaughn was coaching him. I mean, the bubble nets ran very streamlined offense. I wrote about that a little bit because the Pacers had interviewed him. And now, like, I don't know. Like, I mean, they run the, – probably the thing that gets run for Karras the most is, like, Sabonis setting the down screen or, like, zipper action for him to come out, and then they run angled pick and roll. And it just, it, it doesn't feel like, again, I don't know how much of it's the back and his lift. And if he can't get another defender, obviously some of the shot profile stuff has always been apparent that he doesn't, you know, he likes to stop short in the paint and rather than getting to the rim, but he did attempt a decent number of free throws last night and in a couple other games. But yeah, I mean, it just feels like, and in somewhat in that Bucks game, part of the problem is, is in the first Bucks game, they tried to guard Giannis with Turner and Sabonis. And to Miles' credit, like two years ago when he guarded Giannis, I thought he had some very decent possessions. He tied him up a couple times. It made sense to do that. It did not look good in the first game. I don't know why they were playing Sabonis and Miles as high as they were. Like, to me, you need to give Giannis the longest possible obstacle course and drop them back and be loading. And the loading wasn't really happening in that first game. So in defense of the coaching staff, I get why they came out and were like, hey, we're not going to do that again. We're going to have Miles or Sabonis sag off of the shooters and and that hurt somewhat in the corners, but Brogdon was doing it. And because Brogdon was guarding Giannis and they were having to double, they didn't have Brogdon handle as much. And I think that was also kind of a nod to try to prime the pump with Karras a little bit to get him going to handle that much, but it just didn't feel like it was a doing enough else. And like the contrast there between he and Sabonis is like Sabonis averaged 22 points and eight assists against the Bucks last year. And I'll admit like he and miles were not good in that Bucks game. Like they had turnovers. They didn't make great plays, but they weren't know, optimized either. Like they, they weren't, weren't optimized they weren't put they, in good yeah. situations on either yeah. end. Yeah. I mean, that was certainly part of it. And then both of them ended up getting benched and, you know, it is what it is. But my point being is when you're running, when they were running through, it, it's a terrible matchup. Like, I don't really think that there's a good way to figure this puzzle out against the Bucks with the Pacers current roster, quite frankly, but at least the bonus had eight assists in the game. So, or yeah. average that across the three matchups. So that's something, but um, yeah, I mean, I don't disagree. I think that, I think that obviously the injuries matter. I give the coaching staff somewhat of a break on that, even though like, you know, the heat was also injured last night. I, I, I'm a little bit wearing thin with some of that, but I do think that, that they hold 
some of this. Like, I, I'm not ready to say like, oh yeah, it, it has nothing to do with how people are being used because I'll ask you this question. Do you think anyone on the roster is being maximized at the current point in time? Like even just among the starters? No. Um, I think, yeah, just going up and down. Uh, I think Malcolm has been asked to do a little too much. Yeah. Um, on both ends to a degree, like you mentioned, like I get it to a degree with asking him to guard Giannis, but then also when you end up with he, him guarding, no, I mean, well, when you ask him to guard cat too, and then you're not scram switching it, or you're not finding some way to make it. So he's not getting isolated at the bottom of a two, three zone. Like it's just stuff like that was weird. I just didn't understand why some of that was going on. I think why they did that was the Clippers had a lot of success guarding Carl yeah. Anthony Towns and the Minnesota Timberwolves, and they were using Batum and other smaller players. So I think that the Pacers thought, you know, we're going to do that same thing that we did against Giannis with Brogdon, and they needed to be better at doubling it because it was it was pretty easy for him to throw it over the top. I yeah. thought the zone looked way better in that game. Like, I will give the coaching staff credit for that. The zone isn't perfect every night, but it, it's – some of the ways that they match up with it and triggered a man are very intriguing to me. And it it looked good up there in Minnesota compared to a year ago, for sure. And then, you know, to credit Sabonis, he had a couple rough possessions against cat in the first half, but on the stretch in the fourth quarter, he had like three really nice plays against him. I thought before Carl Anthony towns fouled out. So, I mean, I kind of understand that one, but sorry to interrupt. No, no, you're totally good. I think like I understood the initial idea, but then it was just when when Minnesota was finding their counters easily, I was like, okay, well, there, there's got to be something more here, um, and that's where I found fault with it. I guess would be how I go. Um, we already hit on Domas and how that's going uh, with Duarte. I mean, he's just being asked to do so much on the ball, which again I get it to a degree, but like. I mean, you and I both had no idea of him coming in and, and running bench units to a degree. Like, yeah, TJ McConnell will dribble up the court and, and get a set started in the half court, but then it develops into Chris Duarte running pick and roll. And it's not that he's not a capable pick and roll scorer, but in terms of, um, you know, his playmaking out of the pick and roll, it's definitely lacking. Like I, I was talking about this with uh, a friend of mine the other day, like he sees the court completely differently coming off second side or if he's initiating something himself. Um, And I think you've seen some of the limitations and drawbacks with that. So I haven't understood that. And that leads into TJ McConnell. Like I, I have not at all understood how he's been used. I, and we've, we've talked about it too. Like I get at points having him in the slot or, you know, having him spot up so that he can like leak in and and cut into, uh, into the paint and find avenues of, of working, but also the amount that he's been, off the ball with bench lineups has just been kind of staggering. Um, with Tory Craig, I mean, I don't – I think his role has just been odd to me, like like we've talked about. Like, I don't quite understand why he's handling the ball as much as he does, and I think part of that is, like, like we've talked about too, you know, they want to have uh, a lot of players who are um, capable of doing the same thing, but, like, Tory just is not really that capable of – of running effective pick and roll or half court offense in general. And uh, like credit to him for sometimes making shots out of it. And, but he's not really that level of passer. It just, I, I don't know. Um, and then with miles, I mean, like Rick even said it himself in the second game against New York, 
you know, I got to find better ways to get him shots. And it hasn't always been there with him. Um, so I don't know. I mean, that's just going up and down with, with half the roster. And I think you could go in and even more for sure. Yeah. I think miles has definitely made improvements. Yeah. I mean, he's clearly shooting the heck out of the ball. I mean, probably my favorite moment from that game last night was when he took the sidestep three and made it. I'm like, yes, well, that was that a revelation. Was and I appreciate that. Um, and I think obviously the rebounding and, and I think he continues to try to find spots. He doesn't always get the ball kind of like mm-hmm. Sabonis and so yeah, that's another part down the straight down the stretch. I mean, when you look at like I pointed out at that Lakers game, I only lightly touched on it. I mean, this is kind of why you need to see some of the limitations with the roster because the Lakers go small LeBron's at the five. They decided for whatever reason, like we're not going to challenge LeBron with Sabonis, even though LeBron like is switching out to Duarte and Melo now is guarding Sabonis. Like they didn't want to play through the interior. So, you know, whatever. So I accept it. And then Miles, if they used him, that was a good idea because Melo was guarding him. So if you go up, then they're blitzing the ball. And Brogdon actually did make a couple of those passes and he kind of struggled to handle a couple of them in overtime. So like that's that's clear. That's still somewhat of a limitation. But my grander point was going to be like, I just think a lot of this is about Miles, like his improvement, like he made he put in the work clearly to improve his efficiency from three or at least so far in the season. And to improve where, you know, as playing the stretch for what he can do, I don't know how much that has to do with the system. And like, if he had been doing that last year in spots, which, I mean, I think that there were spots for him to be doing what he is doing now. I, aside, I do, I do like that they use him more as a trailer to get trailer threes than what was happening last year. Mm. But I think that's also like his ability to step into a shot now, which he clearly worked on his footwork with regards to that too. Like, I, I just don't know that that has that much to do with this system versus him just putting in work. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, was there anything else you see in terms of utilization and, and, yeah, I mean, I think somewhat with Miles, I'm a little bit different because I think that he can be a high efficiency, low usage guy. Yeah. Like if you watch how teams are guarding him in a lot of cases, with the exception of that sidestep three, like it's not even so much from the perimeter, but what his role gravity is, is, is very different from what it is with Sabonis. So, you know, if he continues to be better at the rim, which he has been, and that gets crowded a little bit differently. I, I question how that would sit and, and different regards, but like him just finding the spots that he is now, if he does this, that's, that's what you want from him. Like yeah. if he has a game where like what New York did in the first game and they don't guard him and he goes seven to 10 from three. Great. If they do guard him in the next one, like, I, I don't know that it's a, a big problem if, you can't find tons of spots there. And some of it, because he is in the stretch, big cutting role to me, it isn't like, and I know that I've shared like the shot, various shot distributions. It's, it's not even so much about that always as it is. What's the purpose for doing it? Because down the stretch against the Lakers, if he could have handled some of the passes, that makes sense to me. Mellow's guarding him as the screener. So if, if Brogdon can get isolated against Mellow and in space and go, or if he gets trapped and miles can get a wide open shot in the paint, involving him in that sense makes complete sense and other cases it feels like it's just like an argument over like why didn't miles get more than eight shots and it's like okay but what was the matchup was there a specific purpose for doing this 
Like, was he actively looking for those spots? Because you're just not going to use Miles and Sabonis in the exact same way. That that wouldn't really make sense to me. So, I mean, yeah. I guess that's how I kind of see that aspect yeah. of it. But. No, I agree with you. I think I should have worded it differently. Like, I, I think it's more just like looking at both him and, and Domas and how they're not getting the ball when they do flash yes, the paint yes, openings. Like, yeah. that's where I have problems with it. I think, yeah, that's completely yeah, fair. I think that's where I have issues with it. I haven't really had issues with his, his usage out from there. Right, because um, last night he did a good job in the middle of the zone, and there was yeah. times where he could have had the ball and he didn't. Mm-hmm. But I don't um, know that that's the coaching staff. I, I, I honestly don't know. I kind of doubt that they were like, hey, don't throw it in there. But to the degree that they've de-emphasized it some of the interior like stuff, I don't know. You know I don't just, know. Well, because weird. when you're pointing out the duck-ins, like there were a lot of turnovers in the first half, particularly in Detroit, trying to enter the ball into the post. And Karras even mentioned that. And it's like, okay, but you're expecting Miles or Domas to be holding back their guy without doing anything to establish position. Like they're just running down the court and having to hold their guy on their back for like six seconds until somebody gets in the mood to throw them the ball. Like, it's not like they came off a cross screen and actually had separation to get it. And then it gets dinked away because somebody reaches from behind or somebody just throws the ball out of bounds, clear over the top of their head, which happened once against the heat. I believe Brogdon tried to enter it into miles and the pass wasn't on target, but yeah, that's, that's totally fair. Uh, well, I guess this can transition a little bit more into, you know, what does this mean from here? Um, yes. And well, I guess, and that leads to the even, even bigger thing of TJ Warren. Um, yes. Cause that keeps getting brought up. I know uh, we still do not have a date on when he'll be back. Um, we haven't heard weeks, not months in a while. So that's, that's not really good, but it's better than hearing weeks, not months for three months. So um i mean i mean it is an interesting dynamic though that like the scans are always favorable but there's never a timetable for return and like i'm not a doctor but that's dragged on for quite a bit and i do think they said that he's not set i think they moved his scans to once a month and he's not set to get another one in december so at the very least he's not returning in december and i tend to to um agree with miles and this assessment which he did an interview with hoops hype i think he was on a podcast and i'll just read his quote when he was talking about tj warren he said you know the aspect that casual fans won't realize is this man hasn't played basketball in a year even when he is cleared to play the process of getting back in shape and playing within a new system where the last time he played was two coaches ago there's going to be an adjustment period like i think that pretty much hits the nail on the head for miles there that like Mm -hmm. If, if the scan doesn't come back again until January, like even if they say, okay, you're good to go, there's going to be a long process to be in condition to work. Like think how long it took. And it's obviously a clearly different injury, but how much time like Victor spent with the G league working up his conditioning. So he would be able to get back out on the court and going from, you know, three on threes after practice to five on fives to full court to, you know, ramping up. And then beyond that, I mean, it's true. Like he, the last time he played was for Nate McMillan. Like he has to readjust the teammates. Like how my question then becomes, even if he comes back in January, unless this whole situation rapidly turns around, like how many games is he actually going to play before the trade deadline? Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, that's a great point. Uh, I mean, he was, seen getting shots up today just light work um at at Cambridge or I guess it would be St. Vincent uh but 
I mean, I, 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 I lean the same way as you. I think a lot of times, uh, you know, it, it'll get brought up as, oh, well, when TJ gets back, I'm like, yeah, but TJ is not going to be TJ when he gets back. And that's not to discredit him, but like, exactly like you're saying, this dude hasn't played basketball in like 500 days. Um, that's a long time to go without out conditioning to go without. Um, and granted he had like spurts in between for sure, but Part of what's hard to assess this is like we just don't really have a lot of information on what's going on. I'm not saying we need to know every single thing going on with TJ, but also it just has felt very awkward in how it's been handled, frankly, um, in terms of, you know, like just just being transparent about what's going on with him and when he will be back and, and how his progress is, is going or if there has or hasn't been progress. Clearly, it seemed like there was progress at one point and then he was back in the boot. And I don't know, but. But saying all of that long ways to agree with you, like, I mean, there's a chance maybe he doesn't even play until March. Um, and that's obviously not sourced or anything. That's just like thinking, like like you mentioned with Vic, like Vic practiced with Fort Wayne for like, what, a month, a month and a half before he even came back to, to playing with the Pacers. And then you think about how long it took him to try and ramp back up to being close to full like health level. And even then, like he really wasn't, the same physically until the next year. And I, I won't even say it was the same physically, but in terms of being like close to, to being that guy, like he still had the issues with his handle and legs weren't really in sync, but like he at least athletically looked close to the same, like 95% of what he, he had been in 17, 18, but that took half a year. So yeah, I agree. And it's different too. Cause yeah, TJ's bigger. He's not the same kind of athlete that, that Victor is, but that's, Asking a lot for somebody to come back and magically solve all of your problems that you have on both ends. Yeah, I, I just don't know how much time you're really going to have to properly evaluate that before the trade deadline. He's in a contract year. Um, and I did think that the other quote from Miles was a somewhat of a departure from what we had heard. And I tend to think this is probably I mean, I'm not going to discredit it, period, because it's what he's saying. But he says, quote, we thought he was going to be ready to start the season but he had a setback. Like I've never heard anybody with the organization refer to that specifically as a setback. I think it was termed in August or whenever that was that it wasn't healing as quickly as they expected. So that might just be how miles is terming, whatever they saw on the scan. But like you said, like Warren tweeted that he had played basketball again, and then he was back in a boot. So that also colors like, which I'm sure we can get into next. There's a lot of criticism for the front off for the front office after that game the other night. And it's like, they did term that like, you know, we signed Tory Craig with the anticipation that TJ Warren wasn't going to be back. But miles is very much making that sound there that like the team expected that he was going to be ready to go and that there was a setback. So in like defense of the front office on the injury front, like there's no way they knew that Karis Levert was going to have this back issue. It seems like they anticipated that. I don't think that they knew that TJ Warren was going to be out this long. I'll just put it that way. So, like, there are going to be questions. I get that that it feels stale and that it feels purgatorial. But from their perspective, after the coaching change, I can understand why they were like, let's finally see what this is. We think we're going to have people ready at the beginning of the season. We have time to evaluate it and and move from there because the other aspects of it are is like tj is hurt he's hurt over the summer miles had the foot injury over the summer and was out of shape like 
you don't know what type of value the two of them would have had. And I'm not saying that those are the two they were going to trade. I'm just naming two people who are injured. Like what type of value they would have had over the summer. I mean, there the teams that got brought up in conjunction that was getting sourced and reported with miles was like New York. And I know that I think there was a quote recently from a podcast up in Minnesota that the Timberwolves still had interest in miles as well. I don't really see what the Pacers were going to trade with either of those two teams that was going to make them better. They hired Rick Carlisle to compete, not to take steps back. They weren't going to go for a rebuild, though I will say that's another piece of this. Like, I know a lot of people are like, blow up their roster or do this or that. Well, it was reported, I believe, by the Indy Star that Kevin Pritchard did want to go, or at least was considering a rebuild, and ownership wasn't really on board for that. Like, is, is, is that how you recall it? Cause I, I seem to yeah, think no, that I was reported. That report so like, I don't really think that that's the person who deserves criticism for why they didn't necessarily go in that direction. And in terms of making upgrades over the summer, I'm not sure that there was a clear means of doing that. And we do know from like five reporters that they, I, we, I don't need to rehash and get into whether Ben Simmons was a fit or not, but we, it, it sounds like they at least had those conversations. So it's not like they were just sitting on their hands being like, you know what, we're resting on our laurels. We're completely good with this roster. And to say that they've done nothing in three years, they traded their franchise player last year. And I understand that Victor Oladipo was diminished, but they did, tr- they did make a significant trade within the last year. And we also know through Kevin Pritchard's own admission that they went as hard as they possibly could after Gordon Hayward as well. Like they were willing to move pieces of this core. They can't deals. Aren't just one-sided. They can't just call somebody up and be like, well, we're trading our guys and you're giving us that guy. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I don't think that, um, I don't think that they deserve full criticism for how things have gone this year. Um, especially when it pertains to to personnel to to a degree, because I think that's an important part to look at. Like, unless they decided over the summer we're going to trade Domas, which that that's another piece of it. Like, if if you're going to come into the year and your coach maybe doesn't view Domas in the same way that prior coaches have that that got the most out of him, then maybe you should look into it. Um, but in terms of yeah, like Miles was coming off of missing the back end of last year. Um, and TJ went from, you know, maybe he'll be healthy to now, yeah, we have no idea. So there's not really anything there in terms of like, I don't think you're going to get much out of a trade for that. Um, so I agree. There's not really a lot of personal moves that you can make in, in that instance. Um, and I've seen people get, people have thrown out stuff about like the Malcolm extension being bad. I don't understand that no. either. Um, Malcolm is arguably been and I, I said this on twitter too partially because of what he's being asked to do and and what domas being asked to do, but i think there's a case that he's been the best player on the team this year and there i mean it's never stationary like i think it it fluctuates there were times last year where same thing with malcolm i think he's in some ways one of the harder guys to replace on the team but that's part of the whole roster but um point being like i don't really fault them a whole ton for how that went but I can definitely fault them for how things are playing out with Rick Carl. I'm not saying that you're trying to absolve them at that, but. Um, right. Cause I mean, it yeah. seems like there's somewhat of a communication gap. Cause like what I mentioned with some of it earlier, like it just didn't seem like there was a lot of enthusiasm in that. Yeah. I mean, at, at media day, it seemed like they tried to patch that over a little bit, but like, you know, I felt a lot of times watching it and I've said this on other podcasts, I'll say it again. 
when I watched the Pacers play defense last year, I consistently felt like Nate Bjorkren is coaching the team that he wants, not the team that he has. And I feel that way on offense as well. Like I, again, I would understand having, you know, your best player take a step back. If you had made other upgrades, I don't really understand it within the current context. And I understand that Sabonis's turnover rate has not been great in every game. And he deserves some responsibility for that. Some of the complaining with officials, again, I understand that there's probably some calls that haven't been made. I'm not interested in being a ref analyst. Like there's stuff like that, that he could clean up, but his actual live ball turnover percentage is like one or 2% higher. A lot of that is like offensive fouls and stuff, which again, he can clean up, but some of that's also how he's being positioned and the whole like, driving into collapsed defenses instead of doing some of the pitch plays that allowed him to carve out space that they used last year. But long story short, I, I, that's how I feel looking at the offense at times. Like you want to be able to have this team where everybody, you know, can contribute in this more egalitarian sense and you want to be able to play five out, but the roster isn't really conducive to that. So um, if you're going to run back the same team, that, that seemed like that could, probably be a little bit more of a conversation but that also goes back to the whole thing of like we don't know what is available out there in trades and we don't certainly don't have as much information as the front office does and what might become available in trades it's entirely possible that they thought to themselves or had information that like hey if that team gets off to a bad start they might be willing to move this guy and we don't want to move our pieces in june because in December, when everybody becomes available, if some team gets off to a rough start, we'd be a lot more interested in that. And I don't know that. It's just, I don't, I don't think that you just necessarily make a trade to make a trade. And the one thing that I think that this front office has been strong about, and I think that, you know, criticism over some of the draft picks is definitely warranted. Criticism over the Bjorkren hiring process is definitely warranted, but, um, They've been very good at, at timing when they make these trades and getting value back. I mean, yeah. people can say what they want of like, oh, it's been a downgrade from Paul George to Oladipo to, to Levert. I'm like, well, first of all, like Paul George isn't Levert now. Paul George is Levert and two-time all-star Sabonis. Victor was a two-time all-star. Um, and I, I don't completely think Levert is 100%. And also they were not negotiating from a position of strength in either of those cases. They were coming off Victor having a very rough bubble experience and then having a lot of drama around that whole situation. And yet they held on to him when they could have panicked, they could have moved him and they held him, held on to him, had him come back. He recouped some of his value. And I think they did as, as good as they could have getting Karis, like given what other things were being brought up and in the Paul George setting, like as soon as he asked out, they could have taken, you know, the deal from Denver, they could have taken, I think some stuff was floated in a three-way with Denver and Cleveland and they didn't. They took one that got panned that turned out pretty well for them. I don't think anybody criticized the TJ Warren trade when it happened. So in this particular sense, like the one thing I will say, I'm I'm leaning more towards unless like something radical changes. I think that you can see clear limitations with their this roster and they're showing up even more at the end of games and specifically when teams ramp up defensive pressure and start showing some of the traps. I think that's concerning. I think that you probably need to be making changes. But um, I don't think anybody's lost their value. Like, as frustrating as all of this has been to watch, other than the fact that, like, yes, you did the extension with Brogdon, which, quite frankly, like, if there is the cap spike that some people expect, then getting the contract done now makes quite a bit of sense. But, like, you can't move him. But who, who has lost value? Like, Miles's value has to be higher than what it would have been in June. 
like within reason, because, you know, there aren't a lot of teams that need centers. I think most people are just going to look at the Sabonis situation and be like, well, we're just not going to use him like that. And even, even in spite of that, he's had near 2020 games a couple of different times. Like you're not going to have a lot of guys be able to get you 16, 25 and 10, like he did up in Minnesota. I don't think his trade value has been hurt. Like Karras's might be because of the back issue and some of, you know, how he's played that that's possible, but like you still have guys on good contracts that they can move. Like this isn't an unsolvable situation. Even if they looked at that Miami heat game and they're like, wow, a lot went wrong there and we're pretty concerned and we need to make some moves. I, I don't think that they're in a bad spot. Yeah, no, I agree. I don't think that they're in a bad spot um, in terms of, uh, you know, what the value of the roster is, but in terms of how they can make moves to be a better team uh, in this stage, I, I don't know. I think that's where, um, like, I guess I, my point would be, it's not that there isn't value on the roster, but I'm just not sure what it is. Would you agree with that? Like, I, I don't, I don't know quite what um, it's building to, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I, I won't, might tell you after the podcast i've heard some things about what the various values are for turner and sabonis that would probably be somewhat surprising and i mean i can't confirm them which is why i probably won't say it here um i think both of them are good in their own independent ways i mean you the problem with the sabonis thing is i i I realize that I'm probably higher on him than most. I, I, sometimes I get very confused and wonder like, do I not know how to watch basketball with some of the stuff that gets put out there a lot, but he's far exceeded his contract value. Like he's making 18 million. He's a two-time all-star. And because of what I just said, I don't see the Pacers getting another guy who's going to like, who's going to sign as a free agent at some point and give him 16, 25 and 10. If they move him, are they going to get draft picks that are going to equate to somebody who's going to be able to do that? And like, and I get, I get the arguments completely that they don't have somebody on the roster who's a clear number one option or a top tier, you know, superstar. That's completely valid. But if you're going to be moving him, in my opinion, you better be getting either a pick that's going to eventually, hopefully translate high enough to get you your best player, or you better be getting a best player in return. Because some of the stuff that gets brought up, I'm like, you're going to trade your best player, like no offense, but for role player pieces, like I, I, I don't, that it's what you're saying. Like that's, I don't know that that's necessarily making this team better in the here and now I'd rather you just tinkered with what you're doing in a different way. Yeah, no, I agree. Like, as, especially too, cause it's not like, I, I think to a degree, and I think it was the same with miles too. And uh, again, like it's not uh like he's turned into an MVP or anything, but guys can change in throughout their career. And, and Domas is still young. Like what? He's 25 now, I think, uh, or he's, he's 24. I can't remember off the top of my head. I'm looking right now, but point being like, he's not done developing. Like I think it's been tough for him this year because he hasn't uh, like we've talked about, he hasn't been perfectly optimized, but I do think like in terms of looking, yeah, his perimeter defense has gotten a little better. Like his hands have, have gotten better and, and attacking and passing lanes and stuff like that. But it's yeah. Like point being he's young, he's on a good contract and he's still very valuable to your team. So it's just, I, I agree. I don't, unless you're committing to like some full, full on rebuild, then sure. But also I think you could bring up too, and this is not meant as like a shot, but if 
some full-on rebuild is happening, I don't think it's happening with this front office. Um, like after making the move to make to, to bring in Rick Carlisle, I don't I just don't think that that's on the table. Um, if we're being honest, uh, like well, just I think they, if it was if it was on the table and it, it would have happened, that it would have happened over the summer yeah. because it's that it was said that they considered doing that. <laughs> yeah. So no, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I don't really think that. I mean, I could be wrong. Maybe Carlisle is frustrated with the situation enough that he would be like, "Yeah, we got to take some steps back." And I'm not saying that I don't personally see that there might be value in that. I don't know what's all available out there in trades to have a firm opinion on what they should and shouldn't do. And I think that's the most important piece of this without knowing what pieces they're going to get back and whether that's going to fit. I can't really answer that question, but um, overall the Sabonis question in terms of his contract coming up, you still have him under contract for two more years. And I think that's pretty valuable. However, Something we didn't talk about from last night's game that I think that we should talk about. He seemed completely fed up by the end of that game. Yeah. Like there were numerous times and it wasn't just him. Other players were getting on each other at certain points as well. But by the end of that game, after like the non-call from the referee, which like I said, he's got to tone some of that down. I understand that it seems like he's taking a lot of contact, but you still got to get back on defense and, and whatnot. That's a fair criticism. But they go back, and prior to that, there's a possession where they're up at the top of the key. I don't remember if P.J. Tucker's the screener or what. But for the majority of the game, as they did in the first game, if Tyler Hero had the ball, they were hedging. And it seemed like that that's what they had moved to by the second half. So he's up, ready, ready to go above the screen, and Karras gives up a screen rejection. So Tyler Hero goes down the lane, and Sabonis is able to recover kind of alters the shot, does not block it, but alters it. So at least it's a wide angle layup. Then the non-call happens. So he's clearly already not in a great mental headspace, it seems. Obviously, some of the booing was going on in the second half, which, you know, I'm not telling fans what they should and shouldn't do. I'm just saying that that's what happened. But then that exact same thing happens again, where they get up there and he's going to hedge on Tyler Hero and Tyler Hero gets straight to the rim. Nobody stunts off weak side and he scores the easy layup. And then it seemed like there was a pretty like significant argument between him and Karis. And then there was like Karis making talking hands, which I think was like him trying to say, well, you have to communicate. And that's true. Like it is the backline defender's responsibility to say, you know, where the screen's coming from, but also like you did not remotely try to get back in that play. And it seemed like it was an automatic that you were going to be hedging against hero, which wasn't really what he was positioned to do anyways. So point being is there was also another possession when Keelan and I think O'Shea got pulled where neither of them came over to tag, which was like a routine problem for both um, when Miles and Sabonis were coming up top. Like the weak side help was kind of non-existent at certain points in the second and third quarters as well. And Sabonis blew up at, I think, Keelan around the time when the booing was going on. And then Keelan came out. And it just seemed like there was a lot of frustration and tension. And I don't know if that goes back to like, you know, I'm fighting for position and I'm also not getting the ball. And I also had to take a COVID test before this game and we're also losing and whatever, but there was, there was obvious that that was there. So I guess like, where do you stand on? Cause Karis, like just to clear it up, Karis said after the game, like, that's my brother. That's who I want to fight with. Like we're both super competitive you know, we talked it out. We were fine. As soon as we left the huddle, we're fine in the locker room. Like I know where he was coming from. I know where 
he knows where I was coming from. Like, it seemed like they cleared it up, but like overall, where do you stand on the amount of frustration that was being shown out on the court? Uh, that was a great question. Um, it, it's tough because it wasn't just Miami. Like I felt like it was very uh, noticeable against Miami, but that's been happening a lot. Um, just recently in general, like anytime that there is a blown assignment on defense, um, I think there are multiple guys getting getting frustrated. You're seeing like, um, especially with Miles too, because how much Miles is communicating on the back line. And that's not to say that Domas isn't, but just I mean, Miles is typically the guy who's at the back line making. Uh, I mean, communicating from there, um, like you'll see how often and you can hear under the basket too, how often he's calling out the guys after things happen. Like there has been a lot of that going on. Um, there just seems to be a lot of frustration in general. And I, I don't, I don't want to read too much into it, but also like that. I mean, it's very noticeable. It's very clearly happening. And I, I think it would be disingenuous to just be like, Oh, you know, it's just, for love of the game, you know, they're upset that they're losing. Like, I, I don't think it's just that simple. Right. Cause I mean, even with miles in the Hawks game, like I have the possession in the article where he's basically palms up. Brogdon gets completely spun out on the over, but like you were in a deep drop with Kevin Herter and he just walked into a shot. And like throughout that game, they had been chasing over and then the big was switching onto the ball. So like, this is a whole thing. Like this is a multi-pronged thing because how are you at the end of the game? And like, so, like, I don't know if they're changing the coverage at the end of the game or like, there's just this amount of miscommunication. Cause like even the Lakers game, when they kept messing up those guard to guard uh, running slips that some of that was present last night against the heat again, where they were ending up with two on the ball and nobody was slipping out. If they wanted to be switching, they weren't communicating the switch. Like, how is that still happening to that degree late in the game? And like, I'm not saying you're going to be flawless on defense. Like you're going to make mistakes and you're going to have to cover for each other, but like, and it's one thing too, like what I said with Karis, not really fighting to even get back in the play. It's like, they make the error. And then they just kind of die on the vine. Like, oh, that happened. And like, sometimes you can see shots go through and it's like heads drop. Like there's a dejected quality there. And like, and I'm not even criticizing the body language. Like I get it. This is frustrating for everybody involved, but I don't know. It, it, I think I land on the space that like, obviously at least like, and that they won't tell anybody who the team captains are, I guess. Like, I don't know who they are, but like, if you're looking in the sense that Sabonis is one of your best players, at least he cares enough to be tearing into people. Maybe I don't, I don't know, but I mean, it's not good. Like it, it seems like they're not on the same page and it just, everything that happened in that game was a lot. And it felt, it felt like stuff was bubbling over a bit, like what you saw last year at the back end of the season. And I'm not saying this is a Nate Bjorkman situation. I'm not starting that narrative, but like what was happening in that Kings game. And it's already happening 20 games into the season. Like, I think there's some pretty concerning red flags. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, it, it has not been good. And I, I know that's, that's very reductive analysis for me, but I just, I don't really know what else to say on it. Um, because this is not how I think either of us pictured this year playing out. And I don't really know what this means moving forward because like that Miami game went from a game that, you know, coming into this week we thought was going to be pretty difficult. I mean, their, their schedule here on out is not easy, but like that was a game that you, you can't lose. Like we talked about earlier, they play Washington tomorrow, or I guess today when this is dropping, um, 
Then they play the Knicks again, who they they obviously struggled with quite a bit in that second time that they played. They play Dallas the next game and Golden State. And like this is just the I mean, they're nine and sixteen right now, and it does not appear that they are going to be even if they go five hundred from here on out to um you know open things up uh, a little bit more in the win column, like that's you're still seven games behind five hundred. Like that's not it just doesn't really feel like there's quite an end in sight with this to a degree, not to sound super um, unfair, but I, I don't know if you feel differently, but it's just kind of like, I, what, what are we doing? Yeah. Cause I mean, I think that effort cleans it up. I think that it's, like I said, it's not helpful that Duarte's shoulder and Karras is back and now TJ's wrist and, you know, the list goes on and on has been what it is, but I don't know that those two things completely fix some of the overall ceiling issues and other stuff. And like, it does kind of come across that, like I said before, like some of these same guys were not having effort issues two years ago. So what is the reason now? And is it because like, you know, it's just start, I don't want to, I don't want to use the word toxic because that's way too harsh, but is it just like, it's gone on too long? Like I, I, that's something. And this is the one part I will say, I know there's a lot of pitchforks out for the front office in general I think I would rather, I mean, I, I'm pretty confident. I would rather have somebody who understands all of the dynamics of this situation and has been around all of it for two years to figure out a way out of it, especially since we know that they've been pretty solid at making trades. So that's kind of where I land on it. I think that, you know, you got to evaluate what else goes on in this homestand, but I'm ready to raise a, a red flag for sure. And I know I've used that word multiple times, but, you know, I don't know how many more times you can put that particular product out there when you're already, you know, the TV deal is already affecting your overall fan base to a certain degree. The attendance hasn't been great. You know, you don't know the entire reason for that. I'm certainly not going to tell people how to spend their money or if they're wanting to go out during a pandemic and be at games. I I don't know what all factors are there, but I mean, I've sensed it on Twitter that there's a certain, that there, that there's fan apathy. I'm sure you have as well. Oh yeah. I mean, that's, that's definitely a factor where I've literally had fans tell me like, Oh, well, I'm surprised you still like are, are even sharing clips about this, like and not criticizing me just being like, I don't care enough to know why they lost. Like I've had literal people tell me that. So, you know, I think you gotta, you gotta weigh that. Yeah. But I guess my last couple of questions, like, I think another criticism, which I think is somewhat warranted is that, you know, how much longer can you have faith that this roster would all be healthy at once given some of the injuries. And I think, again, that's fair, but I I do think in some of the small market stuff does come off of like, okay, like we've heard enough of that, but like, this is part of the gamble that they have to take, like getting guys who are injured or who are unloved in another situation. Like that's the way you're going to get talent. And you hope that it works out. You hope that TJ Warren doesn't break his foot again. You hope that, you know, Miles doesn't have the toe issue or that Karis LeVert doesn't have the issues that he's had. And there was, you know, priors there to hope that, to, to see that it could be a case again, but you don't know that. I mean, even look over at Denver, like for the most part, they've done everything right. And they took a chance on Michael Porter Jr. falling to them in the draft because they're not going to get a guy like that in free agency. They signed him to a max contract and now he's having his third back surgery in however many years. Like they didn't have information of that when they signed him. And you just kind of have to be like, you know, that's what they had to do to be competitive. It's it's not great that Jamal Murray tore his ACL and that PJ Dozier tore his ACL. And like, you know, 
I, I just think that's kind of part of it. So I can't even really come hard at criticism with that either. But yeah, no, I agree. Like 100%. Um, what are, what else are they supposed to do? Like, I think like you talked about with, with TJ, I mean, they got him for a second round pick and, and cash and seeing what he did in the one, the one season that he was fully healthy was, I mean, he was incredible. He was an above average starter. Then I think he was second leading scorer on the team or was he, was he first? I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, but point being, I mean, he was, he was fantastic. And, and you see how much the team has missed him in the two years since like, that is a good move, like getting Victor and, and Victor was less injuries and more just inconsistency. And, you know, like he, he did deal with nagging injuries to a degree, but also just, he was never like quite that guy. And, and he found his way there. And like, I agree you have to be willing to take risks and, and find ways to, to add talent to your team through unconventional ways when you're Indiana, but also, and I think you and I were talking about this before we got on, I'm tired of fucking hearing about the tough out and I'm sorry to drop it like that, but I, I just cringe every time I hear we want to be a tough out because I've heard that for five years now. And it's just, I get it to a degree, but like, like you mentioned too, with miles, in, in his post-game presser, I was like, that's the exact same way that I feel. And I'm not, I'm not even a fan of the team. I just think about it in terms of like, I'm tired of hearing that same rhetoric over and over again, because to a degree, like when you hear it once, sure. Once you hear it like seven or eight times, you're like, why do I have to feel sorry for you? Like, why do I have to feel any kind of empathy for, for this situation? If you're just going to keep viewing it as, Oh, you know, we, we believe in ourselves, but we'll see what happens. Like I, I, it just, I think to a degree as an organization, you have to portray somewhat irrational confidence to a, to a degree, because if you don't, why else are your players going to? Like, if you just keep saying, well, you know, we're going to be, a, we're, we, we view ourselves as a 48 win team who might make it to the second round. If you just keep saying that over and over again, how is your, how is the roster that you have going to overshoot that? And maybe that's an unfair way for me to look at it, but I do think for a team that's been, in that same position for half a decade, then you have a player like Miles who's been here for that entire time. Like, I mean, I would be sick of hearing that over and over again. Uh, right. Like, I, I don't know if you feel the same, but that's. No, that I understood. I understood where he was coming from for sure. I mean, and again, like in part, it's like, it was good because several of them did seem to be showing quite a bit of not just frustration, but like, you know, I don't, I wouldn't even call it indignation, but like seems determined that, you know, to move on from that, but like, it's somewhat of the verbalization of it. Cause like you said, like they started the season and was like, you know, we want to get back to the playoffs, but it's going to be hard. Or, you know, we want to be a tough out or, you know, whatever, like, and they're like, well, you don't want to set, you know, the bar higher than that because you might exceed it. I'm like, okay, if you, ex if you say you want to get back to the playoffs and you, you win around, nobody's going to be mad that you exceeded expectations. It's kind of like the verbalization all the time of like, well, we have a tiny margin of error. I'm like, I agree with the amount of injuries that you've had. You, you have had a tiny margin of error in a lot of these games. You had a minuscule margin of error when you played up in Brooklyn and you, you didn't have basically anybody to initiate offense. Like that's completely fair. But when they're constantly like, you know, we don't have star players. Like how does that sit when you have a two-time all-star on the roster? Like, and like, and I'm not saying that you should be referring to him as a superstar. Like he's not on par with, you know, that degree of player, but you know, sometimes it feels like they downplay the overall five players that they do have and the talent and, you know, 
it, it does, it, it can feel like an excuse at times. Cause I mean, I, I guess the last question that I did want to ask is, do you think that this team should be better than this right now? Oh, or yes, do you think that the definitely. East has improved enough that, you know, this is just, you know, maybe if you go back in time two years, if the East was as good as it is right now, that they would have looked, you know, different in the light then too. Well, I think let's just put it like this. You can go back and look at that game against Denver. They should not have lost. Um, at least I would argue that, that there's no way they should, they not should have lost, lost that. No. I do think, too, looking at Charlotte, like the, the first Charlotte game, the very first game of the year, I think to agree too, to a degree, too, like they had a 22-point lead in that game. I don't think they should have lost that either. Um, you Again, just looking back at this Miami game, like that clearly is not a game that they should have lost. I, I do think this team should be a game or two under 500 at most. And I think to some people that might be unfair, but also just like, like, like we've talked about with the way that everything's played out, like they should not have even been within 10 points of that Detroit game. That Detroit, I do appreciate what they're, what they're building towards, but for that team to be, for the, for the team to be mostly healthy and lose to the worst team in the NBA, uh, that was, I mean, that was really, really bad. So, yeah, I think that's, that's what, five wins right there. That will put them at 11 and 11, or not even 11 and 11. Um, what, like, let's say 13 wins. That's right about 500, and I think that's about right for where this team should be. At least that's how I view it. Yeah. Yeah, I think that there's a case in both directions. I think that I think that they've underachieved to this point, even with the injuries. I think that you yep. can, I mean, the, the game up in Toronto – when I mean, in this one, I will use the Rick Carlisleism. Their disposition to start that game, I yeah. do agree, was not good. Yeah. Um, but then it all goes back to you know, it's all circular. Why is that happening? But yeah, I think that they've underachieved. But I also think it's it's questionable to know how much that ceiling could raise. Um, I certainly thought they were going to be better than what they are right now. But I also thought that that TJ and Karis were going to be healthy and ready to go. So you know, you got to evaluate from there. But yeah. Nope, I agree. Well, Caitlin, I guess that uh, that just about wraps up for us. Did you have anything else you want to get off your chest before we get out of here? No, I think that this has been a nice, safe space, a good therapy session. I'm sure our comments on Twitter will be a nice therapy session too. But um, no, actually, I'm sure people will be pretty good about it. But um, I appreciate you taking the time. It was good to to hash through some of this stuff and air out where we're at with the Pacers right now. They have an opportunity to get into uh, the win column after four straight losses tomorrow uh, against the Washington Wizards, who have also been on their own skid recently. So we will see how that plays out. But uh, until then, thank you for listening. Caitlin, it was good talking to everyone listening. Thank you for listening. If you haven't already, please be sure to rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts. Of course, read us over any corners. If you want an even more in-depth look at some of the stuff we're talking about, Caitlin had a wonderful article that dropped today. Uh, I recommend reading that. Thank you again for listening. Have a rest of your day.